0: Marina Tallinn, postdoctorate at Erasmus University in the Department of Media and Communication and the coordination manager of the TRESCA project, talks to find out why about the effective communication of science. And we are specifically interested
1: in how science communication can help combat some of the negative effects of misinformation. The importance of social science knowledge. Social scientists have a lot to say, um, especially about the topic of trust and how users behave online. And how trust is built online. People seem to have a set of heuristics that are effective. So for example, they say, I check if it's from a credible source. Interestingly, we found that um, when viewers thought that the aim was to change behavior, that was not a problem. We we also saw that um, that being entertaining and being reliable or trustworthy is not a contrast.
0: We started the interview by asking what initiated the Tresca project, the TRESCA
1: project, Trustworthy, Reliable, and Engaging Scientific Communication Approaches, came about in the aftermath of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, when large proportions of the general public realized what is happening to their data, uh, to the data traces that they leave um, on social media, and uh, the severe consequences this can have for something as important as uh, political elections.
0: What was missing in the public discussion in the aftermath of this scandal?
1: What was partly missing from this debate as this was going on was the perspective of social scientists, because of course there's the whole technical aspect of how social media platforms operate, the attention economy, the business behind it, the the algorithms, this mysterious thing, the algorithms that present certain contents to us. But what was missing, what is tying all of this together, like the social, the social story around it, and social scientists have a lot to say, especially about the topic of trust and how users behave online and um, how this enriches their lives and, um, and so on. So um, this was like the entry point for the Tresco project. Um, and so we engage, many of us are social scientists, but we also have computer scientists on board. Um, and um, we engage really with the this intersection. It's like there's a technical side to it, but there's also a social side to it.
0: With all that is happening right now, with uh, social unrest because of the pandemic and the amount of misinformation online, do you think that social science should again have a more central role in the public debate? Right now, we are recently, anyways, we have
1: experienced um, riots and protests. by specific groups of the population, right? These were protests and riots against um, the coronavirus measures. And our prime minister has repeatedly said that that he will not look into the sociological explanations of these protests. And uh, that is so puzzling, right? Because I'm not sure that a virologist or a doctor, a medical doctor will understand why specifically disadvantaged young people, young men often go to these protests and and what what is driving them to do that? We need the perspective of social scientists to understand so many aspects of what is going on during this pandemic. The consequences of the pandemic are largely social. Of course, we are talking about a virus and that's a medical story. But what we also see is misinformation spreading, um, in part because of how users behave online. Um, We see a rise in loneliness and mental health problems. And we, we, as social scientists, this is our expertise. This is what we are trained to research and understand and find solutions for. Why would you not make
0: use of that expertise? How does Tresca project conceptualize misinformation?
1: In the TRESCAP project, we see the problem of misinformation as a complex problem. It involves many actors, and we are specifically interested in how science communication can help combat some of the negative effects of misinformation science communication is not practiced by just one actor. We could think that uh, researchers are the primary actors uh, in science communication because they they tend to be the ones to produce scientific findings. However, often researchers are not directly the the communicators of their own research, but there's intermediaries, there's uh, translators, and of course, these are uh, journalists often. Um, but also you can think of podcasters, YouTube channels. Um, So um, in in the current stage of the project, we have um, interviewed journalists and asked them how they perceive their role in uh, the misinformation era. Um, We have conducted focus groups with uh, citizens and we presented information to them. We showed them videos and asked them how they perceive them, um, what aspects they care about um, when they watch videos online. We showed them fact-checking websites and... Uh, observed and talked to them about how they would use these or whether they would use these. Um, um, The general gist like from all these activities is that um, these different actors recognize the
0: importance of science communication. What are some of the problems that researchers and generalists face when it comes to science communication? So the researchers tell us it is high up on our list of priorities to
1: talk to the general public. At the same time, they say, we often lack time or proper training to do so. So the willingness is there. They don't require additional incentives. They do want to engage with the general public, but they don't necessarily always know how. Then we talk to journalists about how they perceive their profession, and they tell us that there is several disruptions that they experience um, in these times of misinformation. Um, There's more pressure on them to uh, be transparent about how they do their work. And they happily happily share this. But we also um, hear from these journalists that audience interactions have become more stressful. Some journalists still actively engage on social media and engage in these discussions uh, with the public, but there's also many negative experiences of harassment. And um, so understandably
0: some journalists decide to disengage from these public debates. What about citizen scientists? Do they contribute in science communication as well?
1: Uh, I, I should give some credit to the efforts that citizen science is doing. They often know a lot already about social, political and scientific topics. They are critical. They are thinkers. They are investigators themselves. Citizens slip into the role of a scientist themselves. Um, so they this can involve them uh, going out and collecting data with their smartphones it can involve receiving a data set and then analyzing this and drawing their own conclusions and telling their own stories based on the data that they see Um, there are aspects where and topics where citizen scientists can contribute a lot but also there is um a range of topics and I think when it becomes a little bit more technical where we do need researchers, we cannot replace researchers and scientists with people who are untrained to to do this job. So how science communication can work? So we have different examples of how science communication can work. One of the ways that we practice science communication in the TRESCA project is um, we teamed up with an animation studio and uh, they create these animation videos on YouTube. What we do with them is we conducted a study where we changed certain aspects of these videos. It was a video on climate change. And we tried to understand, does it matter if um, we change the gender of the narrator? Because originally it's male, we gave it a female narrator. Um, does it matter if we start um, introducing uncertainty? Right. If instead of saying 27% of, we, we say about 27% or an estimated number of. So we changed these small aspects um, in the videos to try and understand um, if uh, that would influence trustworthiness, like perceived trustworthiness, or how um, engaging it is perceived to be. And uh, it, it was really interesting to see how um, how effective the animations are and how these small changes only partly mattered Um, Because, uh, and our explanation is, the visuals are so powerful. Like watching these animations, seeing beautiful infographics that are spinning and turning and evolving. This is so engaging. And if I think of how scientists or researchers typically communicate, they simply don't have the means to do this. So uh, one of the takeaways is like, how can we um, communicate science more effectively? In, In these times, right, where a lot of people spend time on social media. How about teaming up with creative professionals? How about using this power that is already there? How can one always consume trustworthy content online? When we ask people, I mean, in our focus groups, when we ask them directly, they seem, people seem to have a set of heuristics that are effective. So for example, they say, I check if it's from a credible source. And that, of course, is the powerful and most often um, suggested strategy. Then what what we found in these video experiments is that the intention of the communicator seems to matter quite a bit. So the perceived intention, right? When viewers thought that the aim is only to inform, right? The communicator comes from a neutral perspective. They don't try to persuade you. They don't try to win you over. They just want to inform you this was perceived to be more trustworthy than any other perceived aims. Interestingly, we found that um, when viewers thought that the aim was to change behavior, that was not a problem. So the video was about climate change, right? And it's uh, it's ended on the message, um, we all play a part in this, um, and we all need to do our best, but uh, currently we're not doing that. But we can begin today. And This was perceived positively so when people thought okay this video is trying to encourage me to change my behavior this that was not a problem but we found that when they thought that the aim was to blame that's that's when it hurt trustworthiness we we also saw that um that being entertaining and being reliable or trustworthy is not a contrast that you could think that when something is perceived to be particularly entertaining that people would be like, oh, oh, probably it's not a credible source. But we did not find this to be the case. Oh, and and in fact, they were positively related. So when the video was perceived to be more entertaining and engaging, it was also perceived to be more trustworthy and credible. So the positive news here is that um, science communicators don't need to shy away from uh, creating
0: engaging and entertaining content. Is that something the disseminators of disinformation are handling better? In other words... How this infodemic happened, seeing all those conspiracy theories that circulate online? Maybe we should first
1: put this problem in perspective, because there's a small section, a small proportion of the population that believes in conspiracy theories. Maybe we should keep in mind that this is a specific group that has specific characteristics. So there are some personality traits and cognitive styles that are related to believing in conspiracy theories. Uh, So so just to delineate the problem a little bit. And there's there's a set of behaviors that is also related to um, believing in conspiracy theories. And one of them is um, to spend more time on social media. So this infodemic and the last months that we have experienced the lockdown measures and um, our lives have changed a lot. This is, of course, a very special time. And at the same time, what we see, the developments that we see are not completely new. Uh, not at all. We like to say in the Tresca project, we often discuss this, th- these current times um, as an accelerator. So something that we have seen already is now just
0: happening much faster. Do you clearly see an impact from COVID on the spread of misinformation? We spend more time at home and
1: less time uh, socializing with our offline relationships. And spending more time on social media is related to being exposed to more misinformation. And then these are also times of uncertainty, right? We just for some time didn't know at all what was going on. The messages that we got from our political leaders were confusing. Masks don't work, don't wear them. Next moment, masks work, you have to wear them. Um, So it's a little bit difficult to know where you're at. And how convenient is it when the world is upside down and everything is uncertain? Maybe you have lost loved ones or your job. You cannot engage in the activities that you typically engage in that structure your day and give you certainty. How convenient is it when this one theory comes around that explains everything? How comforting is that? And conspiracy theories are really interesting because they are not necessarily coherent. So um, people are quite capable of entertaining more than one conspiracy theory at a time. And they sometimes contradict each other. And that is exactly their strength because they are flexible, right? So they are able to incorporate new information and kind of put it into this bigger story Um, that then still makes sense. And It provides people with a sense of certainty and control and conspiracy theories or misinformation. I should probably draw a line there, but I think it's true for both. Conspiracy theories and misinformation often have a grain of truth. I, I don't want to repeat the conspiracy theories on the types of misinformation that are currently going around, but I can give you an example from years ago because I think it's funny. Um, so, uh, I, <laughs> I came across this article that claimed that smelly farts cause cancer. And, of course, I mean, it's, it's still funny. I still, I still laugh at it, it still triggers this emotional reaction. The interesting thing about it is, it's not true, but there is a grain of truth in it. And um, the story was that... Um, in cancer cells, there's a certain gas that is produced. And if that is detected, then the cell is likely to be uh, affected. And that's, uh, that same gas, or at least a similar gas, is uh, contained in human arts. Okay, so that's, so, you know, it's still, it's quite a stretch quite a stretch from what researchers found to the article that was written about it, but there is still some connection. It's not
0: completely out of the blue. Do you believe that empowering the communication of scientific news online can counter the spread of disinformation? It certainly
1: doesn't hurt. Um, Of course, we need many solutions and um, empowering researchers to um, partner up with uh, better communicators, or learning themselves how to better communicate is part of the solution. Social media platforms already have content moderators um, who check content um, and um, some of it is automated, but a lot of it is still done by humans. These are people who read content or look at images and videos to try and understand if they are offensive or not. So there is already a strategy in place that these platforms use to protect themselves So to um, filter certain types of information. If that is already in place, why don't we use it to also filter misinformation?
0: Do we need more civic engagement in order to hold big platforms accountable on content moderation? I like to think of um, the power of
1: citizens because of course they have power. um, And if it wasn't for individuals sharing misinformation, we would not have a problem, right? So individual users do play a role in disseminating um, disinformation and misinformation. Uh, at the same time, it's really difficult to coordinate this, right? We have a collect- collective action problem when we try and coordinate uh, efforts with uh, 7 billion people how many we have on this planet at the moment. So while I believe in the power of citizens, I think, think what is going to be more powerful is to change something structurally. We ask so much of individuals, right? We have to be good in so many ways these days. We have to protect the environment. We have to be politically informed. Um, And uh, we have to socially distance and so on. And then can we really expect my aunt and my grandma to care about um, (laughs) spotting instances of misinformation online and then reporting them or whatever. I mean, yes, we we could, but but I think it's going to be much more powerful if this job becomes easier for individuals.
0: Back to the TRESCA project, what are the future challenges and
1: goals? Yes, something I can share with you, which is going to be interesting for everybody, is um, that we are developing uh, a massive open online course and uh, this is going to be freely available on Coursera. Uh, we are going to um, cover the problem of misinformation from the perspective of researchers, journalists, the general public, and also the attackers. In each module, we are going to walk um, the participant, the course uh, participant, um, through the perspective of this particular actor. And um, the the challenge for us um, in the Trust Cup project is to get all these actors together and to uh, motivate all of them to uh, write a nice script and to uh, engage with each other, to try and and better understand each other's contributions and and how they, or we, I should say, we together um, can help combat misinformation. So this is something to look forward to. It's gonna be um, available at the end of the year.
0: This is really an amazing project and an important work that you're doing. I am really hopeful because
1: I think there is a lot of awareness that misinformation is a problem. And what I take away from our efforts in the Tresca project is that we have not encountered a single actor who told us it's not
0: important. This was Marina post postdoctorate at Erasmus University in the Department of Media and Communication and the project coordination manager of the Tresca project. I'm Elena Giola for Find Out Why.